working really hard as a parent to do is to prevent contempt. Liberals can be extraordinarily contemptuous of people who don't share their views. Welcome to another episode of Mind of State. I'm Michael Epstein. And I'm Betty Tang. And together we are your hosts for Mind of State, a podcast for both political junkies and armchair shrinks. Hi, Michael. Hey, Betty. I'm so pleased and honored to introduce this week's guest, who I happen to have met in my late teens. Dr. Lisa DeMore is a psychologist with an expertise in children and adolescents. She has written numerous academic papers, chapters, and books related to education and child development, and is the author of the New York Times bestselling books, Untangled, Guiding Teenage Girls Through the Seven Transitions into Adulthood, and most recently, Under Pressure, Confronting the Epidemics of Stress and Anxiety in Girls. She writes the monthly adolescence column for the New York Times, serves as a regular contributor to CBS News, maintains a private psychotherapy practice, consults, and speaks internationally. Welcome to Mind of State, Lisa. Thank you for having me. I'm just, I'm thrilled to be here. You're welcome, Lisa. Thank you. Recently, Slate editor Daya Lithwick had an email conversation with you on Slate, and she gets to the heart of the concerns that a lot of parents have with teen kids on a lot of social political issues these days. So Dahlia says, my kids seem to be growing up in a world of near paralyzing cultural dread. They're trying to understand movements like hashtag Black Lives Matter and hashtag Me Too, while being flattened and numbed by school shootings, lockdowns and protests. They can't seem to wriggle out from under the specter of authoritarianism and threat that characterizes this presidency. Or, as my 15-year-old put it a few weeks ago after yet another depressing dinner conversation, living with you guys has been very taxing on me. Your pessimism has been very crushing. Really, I'm just trying to bring back the love. Which is hysterical. It's <laughs> <laughs> so sweet. I know. And, oh. It's like, oh. But what she gets at here is that our anxiety as adults impacts our teens' anxieties and states of mind. At least that's what I read in this. Um as a reader and and person who's tuned to anxiety professionally. But we're the adults. Like, how do we juggle and contain our own stresses so that we can help our kids, in particular our teens who are going to be more aware of the world as their brains develop and, and learn to manage them? And you've been traveling the country and you've been focusing on this, particularly with girls, and the anxiety in them is, you state very expansively in your book, Under Pressure, speaks to this. So can you say something about that? Sure, sure. And I'm a mom myself, right? So I sort of have to navigate this question of, you know, how do I manage my own discomfort about whatever's going on politically in the context of sort of life at home? And my older daughter is 15 and my younger daughter is eight. And my older daughter is very plugged in and very aware and very tuned in to the world around her. So I think about this with kind of different perspectives, both my clinical professional one and then also my life at home one. In terms of the broader kind of cultural political phenomenon, I cannot find a justification for terrifying children. That's sort of where I start. I've had conversations at times with parents who feel obliged to give a very unfiltered uh, account to their child of their current state of concern and and the gravity of their concerns. And, and it's just, it's left me feeling uneasy And also uneasy about my own uneasiness with it. Because a part of me is like, you know, we're honest with kids. We don't soft pedal stuff. And yet kids are helpless. And I know a lot of adults feel helpless too. But at some level, we actually have more power. We're voting. We can donate to causes we care about. We're not entirely helpless. And that's how we manage a lot of our discomfort. Whereas kids really are quite helpless. And the job of adults is to shield them at times. Uh, if not often. And so as I've tried to navigate this both clinically and as a mom, I've come to sort of an uneasy piece with the idea that I don't need to give my kids a totally unfiltered accounting of my own anxieties about the current political state of affairs. They've got a lot on their plates already, which is basically the job of growing up. And I need to raise and help other people raise kids who feel brave and not terrified. And that, I think, means that we have to do some titrating at times. When you talk about titrating, Lisa, I jump to the question of how, given that we, especially with teenagers who are increasingly on the internet, getting information from students, their classmates, from 
online that we may or may not be able to control, how do we contain these anxieties for them or these exposures to them? How do we titrate this stress from the environment? So I think we have a few different openings. One is when they're asking us directly or coming to us directly about concerns. And for me, the way to thread the needle of being honest to kids without being unnecessarily frightening to kids is to remember that all communication holds a few different channels within it. There's the words we say and there's how we say the words. And so what I think parents can do quite artfully, and I think a lot of parents do this instinctively, is they say the truth to their children, but they do it in a tone that communicates a sense that the child can trust that the adults are aware of the situation and are working on it and are responsible for it. So here's a for instance. Say that your child happens to have a really hard time with the Trump administration, right, and have a really hard time with immigration policies and really feel uneasy about the news that is coming across on their plate or in the house or somehow that they're aware of. I think that a way a parent could address the depth of those concerns without unnecessarily stoking the child's discomfort, right? I mean, and then there's a lot of discomfort to be had on those topics, would be to say something like, I know exactly what you're talking about, or I am in agreement with you. The state of immigration and the way people who are immigrating into the U.S. are being treated right now is something that none of us feel good about and, you know, or so many of us feel awful about. And, I, you know, you're having the right reaction. And what we have to hold out for is that these policies will change in time. So everything there is factually correct and also empathic and also acknowledging the child's feelings. But that's a very different communication than a parent who says all of the exact same words in a fever pitch with anxiety just rippling through the tune of their communication. So the same lyrics could have a very different impact depending on how parents package them. So I think that all through raising kids, we have to do this. I remember in a much more pedestrian example, I was driving and I was in the front seat and my younger daughter, maybe she was five, was in the back seat. And she said, are you going to die? And I said, yeah. And then I wait, I kind of held my breath. And then she goes, oh, this really funny thing happened the other day at school. And it was over. So I was honest. I answered the question that was asked, but I also was very deliberate in my tone of just sort of saying, like taking it as like sort of a matter of fact thing. And I don't know where the conversation would have gone if I had said, well, yes, but it's not something you need to worry about now. And, you know, like, you know, taking it down that road. But we have those options in our communications with our kids to play with the nuances of tone and communicate a general sense that the grownups get it and are on it as much as we can be right now, while also having factually correct conversations. What you're talking about is something that we kind of do clinically, which is go with the affect as well as the content, which is go with the emotions or, or use your emotions as well as the text. So your daughter asked, are we going to die? And or our teens come to us and ask about immigration or the Trump administration or the instability in the world. And what you're saying is, is that we can digest this for them and present it back to them in a way that's more stable than maybe they're taking it in and that this is a way to stabilize them against overwhelming information that their young minds may find more overwhelming than our adult minds even find them. And our adult minds certainly find them quite overwhelming. How do we encourage this kind of open communication? You know, I know like being a parent myself of, of younger kids is that it's a catch-as-catch-can. Like they, they come up just like your daughter in the backseat comes up with death. We can't sort of foster these conversations or they might roll their eyes when you want to sit down and say, let's have a conversation about X, Y, Z. Even from like, let's have a conversation about what happened to at school today. It comes out spontaneously. And so, but with with overwhelming information, say, like even recently, the New Zealand massacre. Yeah. Do you, with teens, particularly since they're more and more coming online with their awareness of the world and their brains and they're more exposed to news, how do you foster these kinds of open conversations? 
you wait for them to open the door. You know, I, I think it is hard to have a conversation when we're the one driving the agenda, especially with adolescents. So I would listen for them to say, you know, did you see what happened? I think if we feel that our child may be well aware of it and may be quite uncomfortable about it, I think then we can say, hey, did you see what happened on the news? And sort of open the door that way and see if they want to go there. But we have to follow their lead, right? We have to follow their lead. And if they say, yeah, and they're ready to settle in to talk more about it, great. But I also think, you know, if a, if a ninth grader says like, yeah, I saw it. And indicates that, you know, I saw it and to me it feels like it's on the other side of the world and it's really, really tragic, but I also have a physics test tomorrow. Like, I feel like our kid has a right to focus on their physics test. See, I do both. I actually encourage my kids to read the paper every single day. Uh -huh. I have a 19-year-old uh -huh. and a freshman in high school, a uh, freshman in college and a freshman in high school. And I'm eager for them to have the world pierce the bubble. Because I think that, first of all, I think that a lot of what you are talking about is adult anxiety that I think we project and our kids absorb. So I, I think yeah. that there's a lot of chicken little going on right now in the United States, that the world is coming yeah. to an end, and this too we shall survive. And yet we sort of, I think that a lot of people on the left think that this is the end of days. And... um politically, right? Yeah, uh, you yeah. know, and there's an election coming up and there was a midterm election and this is sort of for better or worse, the process. And there's a sense, I think that especially with certain socioeconomic groups in certain communities that you are supposed to protect your children. You know, there's this bubble and, you know, not to, to paraphrase Thomas Hobbes, right? Life is short, brutish and what was that? Nasty, brutish. Nasty, Nasty, brutish. brutish right? sure. Yeah. And I don't, I don't think that that's a problem that, that kids... Well, I don't think that they should be learning it in kindergarten necessarily, but, you know, at some point, I, I think, you know, both of my daughters in, in different ways lost friends, either to illness or to a car accident when they were younger. Tragedies happen, right? And you have to be there to support them, obviously. You don't want to start introducing trauma. But, you know, in terms of New Zealand, for example, I made sure my kids read everything, you know, that they knew. I don't want them ignorant of that kind of hate. And then do you have a conversation with them about it, Michael? Sure. Of course. You know, but, but it's important for them to engage the world as it is, right? I mean, I don't... Same way I make sure they read about Jim Crow and the history of lynching when Black History Month came around, I, you know, or, I mean, a million things. Because to me, you want to raise responsible citizens. And part of that is to know I mean, I, I'm interested, Lisa, I mean, for me, one of the dynamics that's so toxic right now with the internet and young people that I can see in my teenage daughters, or more in their friends even, is that there's no past tense. It's just a consistent present tense. It's what's, you know, the picture of the day, uh -huh. you know, there's, there's zero context. And so rather than shielding them, I want to try to keep giving them context. And I feel like I'd have to give them as history. Like, hey, it was way it was way worse here for a long time, and we we owned people and sold them, and then after that was over, we passed laws that made it legal to lynch them. I mean, you know, what I mean, like there's the, women were not allowed to vote until 1920. Mississippi didn't, ex, you know, pass the Thirteenth Amendment banishing uh, abolishing slavery until 1991 or something you know i people get caught up in the present tense i think and create anxiety thinking the sky's falling and is that something that you see lisa that there is lack of context and and i think to address what you're talking about michael like in my understanding is is that this is not about shielding but sort of interpreting and how and if we interpret or we just let our kids be exposed we're talking about politics on mind of state, but but it really is about anything. Um, maybe not by choice, kids encounter traumatic experiences. But how do we as adults, um, if they if we're available to them, some kids don't have that. Um, I have many patients who did not have that, and they bear the brunt of it. But for you, Lisa, you know, in terms of this present tenseness imposed by social media, are you seeing that in your patients and your, your in your research and and your conversations across the country? I don't know that I would call it that. I mean, I think in, in many ways they are 
very attuned. I would say that my 15-year-old is the wokest person I know and very much using social media as a place where there is a staying on top of things and a discourse that they're pursuing. I, I think that every one of us you know, has the risk of settling into our own little echo chamber, right? And being, you know, I think adults do it. I think kids do it where, you know, you're connected online to people who agree, agree with, with you, you, <laughs> you know, and then you, that you get entrenched in that. But I have two thoughts on what um, Michael was saying. One is that a way to sort of take a psychological turn on what he's describing is that at some level, we could say that he's helping his kids with intellectualization, right? The defense of intellectualization. So they look at the news of the day, and then Michael, you're helping them to try to see it in a broad historical scope, right? And, and I, have an, I have a friend whose um, husband is an academic political scientist, and this is a very, very liberal friend. And what she says that what she takes comfort in is that he looks at the Trump administration as like a particularly unpleasant blip in this very long kind of historical trajectory and that that's comforting for her. And I think that what we know about psychological defenses, right, is that they act as sort of emotional circuit breakers. They keep us from becoming overwhelmed by affectively charged information. So I don't want to sort of have it be like either you expose kids or you don't, right? I think that that's not the question we're asking. I think the question is how do we expose them in a way that includes enough context or data or broad historical scope or adult perspective so that the news of the day, which in and of itself can blow us all out of the water, how do we keep that from happening to our kids? The other thought I have, though, about what teenagers are exposed to, and I live in, so I live in Shaker Heights, Ohio, which is um, a suburb of Cleveland. And we're, I would say, probably a very blue dot in a very red state. But that doesn't mean that our dot is entirely blue, that um, my daughters both go to school with kids whose families are Trump supporters, are in, are in history class with those kids, and social studies class with those kids. And so I am actually impressed by the fact that my daughter, when Trump was elected, was having much more direct and engaged conversations with people who don't share her politics than I am having ever. And so I am cautious about suggesting that at least the teenagers that I have immediate contact with, I'm cautious about suggesting that they have a narrow view. I, I remember I was talking to a, another mother in my community who herself is very, very liberal and her daughter is dear friends with my daughter. And I said something to her like, you know, our girls are like doing hand to hand combat at school with kids who don't agree with them. You know, I mean, they're like really in it, which I don't ever do. And what are the natures of, you know, obviously these are topics coming up in class. Or is it just happening on the fly or are the teachers bringing it up or is it naturally happening in given the context of the subjects they're studying in terms of how they're negotiating these divisions on the ground in, in ways that we as adults can choose not to? How are they negotiating this? Well, the ones I hear about are much more sort of on the fly conversations. I remember my daughter coming home and saying, a kid in her class had accused Democrats of being hypocritical for not for saying they were feminists and yet not supporting Ivanka Trump's work. And my daughter reported to me that she quickly pointed out to him that the Democrats were the only party, major party that had ever nominated a woman for president. You know, like but she was ready, you know, and 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 sort of said that. And then, you know, it went on to a broader conversation. And I remember saying, where was your teacher? And she said, oh, we had a sub that day. You know, like, so this was all going on, you know, kind of in the garden variety of like, eighth grade. So that piece, at least where I live, is, a, is sort of a fascination to me because I do feel like my older daughter, at least, is way more engaged with people across the political aisle than I am. And she's had to do this now. She's 15. This is seventh grade. And so she's growing up through this. Yeah. And does she feel the polarization such that this classmate is, you know, I don't know if 10 years ago kids would be having these conversations. Maybe they would be. But in the macro sphere, in the adult world, these conversations are quite polar to the point where we don't often enter into the Fox News space. If we're MSNBC people or if we're Fox News people, we don't enter into the MSNBC space by and large. And and we've had a lot of interviews with people about in-group, out-group and, and about sticking to, to your political tribe. But these kids are not there yet, so to speak. And, and they're, they have to engage because they're in class with people and your daughters are, as you put it, going to school with people with families with Trump supporters. So do they feel the lines? The, the divide. They do feel the lines. And 
our job, I think, I feel as parents, you know, is both to hear them out, hear what happened at school today, listen. Around here, especially given that we are a really mixed environment in terms of political views, something I'm working really hard as a parent to do is to prevent contempt. Liberals can be extraordinarily contemptuous of people who don't share their views, and more so than people in other parts of the political spectrum. And so, you know, I'm trying to really always um, push my daughters to try to understand where somebody else might be coming from, even if they firmly disagree with their views. Um, and I remember, I remember going on a long walk with my younger daughter, and she said, "How did Trump get elected?" You know, she asked it flat out, and and I really tried to give my best assessment of what did not appeal about Hillary to a large, you know, percentage of Americans and what does appeal about Trump to a large percentage of Americans and to try to be neutral and also to say this is the piece we don't agree with or this is the piece I do agree with, but to try to be balanced and not jump in with um, what's easy, I think, sometimes to to move towards a dismissive view. Which might be also to be less reactive, which is where sort of contempt can kind of come from because that that's a quick reaction and a, a wholesale dismissal when you have contempt on, unless it's out of deeper issues. But I'm curious, your daughter, your little one's eight. And so she was asking, how did Trump get elected? Was this when he got elected? Like, so two years when she was like six or seven? No, I think I think it was about a year ago she asked this question. So she was probably seven and a half around the time she asked it. What prompted the question? I have no idea. I have no idea. <laughs> but something else happened with her when she was right when Trump did get elected that I also think, you know, getting to that question of our kids having exposure and being exposed, especially when they're little and keeping conversations going. I don't know if it was after a period of her being kind of anxious or somehow it rose to the surface that she was really, really frightened about the elections. It was, I think it was when the elections were going on. And then what came out, and she brought it up spontaneously. I remember we were on a walk. And I think, again, like we were on a walk, you know, and stuff starts to bubble up. She said, a kid said on the playground that Mike Pence is going to kill all the children, right? So she, wow. she had this really wild and terrifying they meant puppies. He was going to kill all the puppies. <laughs> oh, is that what it was? Yeah. Is, that, is that really what the rumor was? Oh, my goodness. No, <laughs> Here's where it begins. The kittens and puppies. Yeah, the kids are fine. The kittens and puppies are... That's incredible. Yeah. Yeah. And so it was so... I was so glad she said it, right? Because then I could address it. But that's the thing, I think, with little kids around the news is there's the news and then there's what they think the news is, right? And so that's the other piece we have to manage as adults is even if we think we're shielding them, they're picking up playground information, right? So so that's probably another moment where we might, you know, say like, here's what's in the news and what are you hearing about what's on the news? Because those can be two very different things. Absolutely. What, what social media do your kids, uh, are they on? So... My little one, not none. And my older one, for reasons I don't entirely understand, has never taken much of a liking to um, Instagram or Twitter, you know, and none of them use Facebook. Um, so I don't really think she spends much time on Instagram. So she actually, is a, she just sort of likes Pinterest and she likes to watch YouTube videos. So she's not deeply engaged um, in, a, in social media. Where she does engage is that I think Pinterest has a lot of memes, you know, where kids are putting up memes about current events. And it's a real hodgepodge, right? Some of it's about Beyonce and some of it's about Harry Potter and some of it's about, you know, what's going on politically. And so she um, stays very, very engaged in that way. But the other thing that, um, so we live in Shaker Heights, Ohio, and uh, my daughter attends Shaker Heights Public School and she's a member of the student group on race relations, which is a 40-year-old institution at Shaker Heights Public Schools, which are, you know, um, unusually well integrated schools. Um, and so she is constantly engaged in very political and very thoughtful discussions around um, racial relations at both at the school level and the community level and the national level. So I'm grateful to Shaker for creating this environment where the school is supporting very thoughtful discussions. 
And the discussions are surrounding discrimination, implicit bias. What kinds of things are I think all of the engage? above. I mean, I think they spend a lot of time. Really, they have a very set program. They spend a lot of time looking at groups and disadvantage and um, you know microaggressions. And not only does she do programming, do uh, meetings and programming with kids her age, they then go into the classrooms of the elementary and middle school and do all of the programming for younger kids, an esteemed position in the high school to get to be the ones who are going and doing this with younger kids. And it's well done and um, thoughtful. And so she engages in that way very um, full on. But keeps her social media, I think, a little bit to the side. And so, you know, this Ferguson was a while ago. She, this was probably before her engagement, the anti-discrimination or the race group at, at high school. But what about Black Lives Matter and the movements that are um, rising up in this polarized climate that we have in our adult spheres today and immigration and the racism that we see through Charlottesville. How are your daughters or your students, your your patients engaging with this information, which can be, you know, how are they digesting this? What What is it doing with their perceptions of themselves in the world? I see them very active with it. You know, I'm thinking of both clinically and at home. I see an urgency on their part to um, get their voice out there. I see them wearing many more t-shirts proclaiming Black Lives Matter, you know, many more yard signs that kids are asking their families to have. You know, I've taken care of adolescents for 25 years, and I've never seen a more politically engaged and active group of teenagers than the one we have right now. Is that their families or themselves? or No, it's coming from the kids. Uh It's very much coming from the kids. I think they're, they're frustrated with the grownups. I think they feel, you know, certainly on the liberal side, I think they feel um, a strong obligation to try to get their voice in. You know, I, I, it's fascinating to watch, to compare, you know, kind of how to out to lunch I was politically as a teenager versus looking at my own ninth grader. How much is the environment a factor in there? The environment in terms view? of our sort of um, mixed political No, 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 or? climate change. Uh, oh, global climate warming. change, climate change. Um, that is not a topic that I hear kids around here talking much about. Like that, that one is not so clearly on my radar. It, to me, it feels much more about racial equity and justice questions than about that. Why do you think that is? I mean, you're, you're, I mean, Shake Rights is hardly a hotbed of racial discrimination. Well, so why is it that it... <laughs> Everywhere's a hotbed of racial yeah. discrimination. <laughs> right. um, it's, not, it's not USC or Harvard. But I'm curious, why is that, do you think, in your community, such a, a prevalent and a central conversation? For kids. Um, so the high school itself is 50-50 minority white, and, and it has a very long history of trying to think deeply and carefully about racial integration. And so I think part of what makes it so front and center is that our demographics bring it front and center. I travel around the country and go to other parts of um, the U.S. Like, where you know I will speak enti- in front of public school audiences that are almost entirely white public school audiences. And so I think you know questions of racial equity and justice. You know some students may harbor them very closely, but it's easy to then also set them to the side and not think about them. Whereas I think with the um, the numerical integration that we have here, questions of equity and justice are in front of them all the time, in front of the kids all the time. And as you were putting it right now, you you see just as you were saying, Lisa and I was the same, like out to lunch politically as teens, and now kids are much more engaged. And what are the factors to push them in ways that are different from what we anecdotally experienced? Yeah, no. So first of all, I think they have, you know, a steady stream of their own information, right? You know, when I think about us as teenagers, you know, if we didn't watch the morning news with our parents, and if we didn't read the the newspaper at night, you know, we were sort of existing in our own little teenage bubble. (laughs) Bubble, yeah. And whereas now, thanks or no thanks to the, you know, to digital technology, kids have constant access to a steady stream of their own updates about the news, however it may come across to them, you know, however, like, it's particularly packaged. See, and I was the kid that got kicked out of high school for political activities. Well, right. good for you. <laughs> yeah. I got kicked out for organizing a boycott of Nestle. Love it. I don't know why you got kicked out, but I love yeah, it. Well, because uh, the administration didn't want me to talk about um, infant formula in Africa and Nestle's <laughs> uh, weaning mothers at, in Africa from... I mean, I don't know if you remember the Nestle boycott from the 80s, 
I do but remember it actually. I was, uh, and so were my you, mother was called in. Were you among a small sort of splinter group of of active? I was alone. And then I got arrested in college. This was, Michael, you standing up against the corporate I tried, you know, look, I I organized people to boycott, you know, uh, Nestle. That that was a big, important thing to me. You had a lot of people come come out and support Mm -hmm. your... Yeah, but, you know, they didn't want me to do political activities inside the high school. This was suburban Chicago. Um, And then freshman year of college, I got arrested for protesting apartheid at the University of Illinois, where I spent uh, three semesters before I transferred out happily for the administration <laughs> um, to Michigan. Well, I mean, this speaks to something interesting because it's it's either, you know, I just Michael, think it's you, organic. Were, you were yeah. right. You were engaged. This is something intrinsic in you. Lisa and I might have been more environmental conditioned <laughs> teens, um, but but we have now kids who are. Um, more across the board engaged and and impacted by the fact that they have their phones and they have access to information uh, a lot and they are living online far more than than probably we do. Although you know yeah, we you are. See, this is where I disagree online. because I actually think that um, this notion that I think parents are taking their anxieties and tra- I mean the notion that a child feels helpless when I was thir- when I was. F- 14, 15, I guess, when I was in high school. You know, I was organizing a boycott of a multinational corporation that wasn't even U.S.-based. And I was just, and I wasn't doing it. I did not start, I don't, you know, I was one, I was a tiny, tiny, tiny little dot uh, for other organizations, mostly, you know, religious groups, uh, which I think is how I found out about it. Uh, But I didn't feel helpless, Right. Well, and actually, earlier on, I said there were two things parents could do, you know, to to sort of help kids. So one, I think, is thinking, you know, how we how we handle our communications. The other thing, actually, is is exactly that point, Michael, around helping kids not feel so helpless in the face of stuff that is scary. And so some of the more um, uncomfortable, extremely uncomfortable conversations I've had clinically are with kids who are very, very scared of a school shooting. Yeah. And mm-hmm. and those, you know, that is a very hard that's a very real have. right. Mm-hmm. That's a totally that's a different, very... totally different. I mean, I was about seeing social injustice in the world and feeling like I should do that... something. And the difference, you know, with where guns are in America at this point is the notion. I mean, I never felt unsafe in in anything in that way at all. Um, and that's where we failed our our kids. Well, so so there's ways though in terms of like addressing the questions of helplessness. So so like let's to let's set to the side for a minute the gun thing. Though I do want to return to it because it's so I do too um, <laughs> so charged. But just even when kids are unhappy, like if they're unhappy about the political state, you know, I think both we can say, hey, this is in the long arc of history. And then I do think we can say, but look, there are things you can do even before you can vote. You know, if you're really interested in this, you know, there are things we can do where your voice can be heard before you hit 18. And so I do, you know, that's like a real, um, you know, kind of template that we always use in psychology when kids are feeling sad. You know, if a classmate's parent dies, we say, yes, it's incredibly sad. Do you want to write them a note? You know, I mean, that we always look for something that the child can do to help not feel helpless. So I I totally agree with you, Michael, that um, they may feel helpless and they may not always even be helpless and that we can point them to ways they can um, exercise you know, the power that they do have, even as kids. But so then to take it to this question of school shootings, right? I mean, this is excruciating conversations because I'm terrified of it. You know, the kids are terrified of it. Um, it's not an irrational fear, um, even if it's a very low base rate fear. And even there, though, I've often found myself trying to help them have some sense. And again, it's it's not complete by any measure, some sense of what they could do. Um, And one thing I often will say to kids is, you know, in school settings, when you look at the data, the kid who, you know, it's often a student who does the shooting and they're often broadcasting in advance that they have something like this in mind. You know, so I will say to them, you know, you guys have data, you, you know, you make sure you get that data to the grownups. You know, you, if you have data that makes you scared, you just let a grownup know, you know, so again, it feels sorely inadequate. Um, It's not enough. But I have found that as one little place that I can try to um, give a child a sense that it's not completely out of control, that there may be a, a piece of it that they may have some 
access to. And what you're talking about, Lisa, is, you know, from my perspective, trauma treatment is taking them out of a frozen place of anxiety and and giving them some empowering, like pointing to their strengths so that, you know, while they are children and their their capacity to to engage with voting and et cetera in the adult world is, is limited, they still have strengths. They have the strength to write a letter. They have the strength to tell an adult if they find something alarming. And we have the, they have the strength of tuning into their own instincts. If they see something online that, that alarms them, that's something that, that, I mean, in terms of emotional intelligence, it's an opportunity for us to say, tune into your, your, your instincts, tune into those feelings that you may have, even though they may be just feelings and not based in any kind of overt evidence. But there's something there. And, and then an adult can take that in and help you with that um, and, and hopefully not turn it into a five-alarm fire if it's not merited, but also together um, because we don't have access to their world. We don't live in their world online. And if the student shooters, you know, past and God forbid future – are active in ways that are patterned, then we can we can communicate mutually about what we see retrospectively and, and what the kids can do to help us about it. But in terms of things like school shootings, this jumps me to, I mean, this is my association. It's something that is very on the ground for kids too, and particularly what you were writing about in your book with In Under Pressure with Girls, this is the hashtag me too topic. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. And you wrote that half of all eighth to 11th grade girls have been harassed. Yeah, this is, you know, while maybe not surprising, it's still harrowing for me as a mother of a young daughter who's now yeah, very young, but but I look ahead and then I have nieces and, and I have friends with teenage daughters and, and they have reported back to me this. And so how to how to help them navigate uh, a world where sexual harassment is present in their in their schools and then they're seeing it in the Kavanaugh uh, hearings and it's not coming to a decision that that is promoting the 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 survivor um, is that something that impacted your patients is that something that that you know that you've had to grapple with at home and and in the office so I will say you know I, I wrote about the levels of harassment that girls are facing and also um, it's girls and also kids who don't identify as straight, you know, that, that they can also be very much subjected to high levels of harassment. This for me is one of those things where I feel that adults, you know, I, I acknowledge this in my own writing and, and you talk about it now. I think it sort of it catches us up short. I think we, we are surprised by these numbers. We are surprised by how kind of garden variety um sexual harassment is in the school day for a lot of middle and high schoolers. Um, I think that part of why it catches us up short is we don't think to ask about it and the kids aren't going to bring it up with us. You know, it it feels sort of shameful and odd. And so they keep it to the side. And so we can carry on with a relatively low awareness of how much of this is going on. So in terms of what we do, like what we do, I think the first thing we is we acquaint ourselves with it, right? Like get to know the real numbers, get to know the forms that harassment takes. And then a first step probably is to bring it all under the umbrella that already exists in most middle schools of sort of anti-bullying behavior. You know, the bullying is a term that's obviously um, had a lot of traction in recent years. And I, you know, that's something where schools do are talking about it and are thinking about it. And in truth, sexual harassment is bullying with a sexualized twist, right? But it's essentially just bullying um, made weirder or more uncomfortable or more shaming for the recipient. Um, So I think that that's a first step. The other thing for girls that I have found, which again, seems small, but it feels like it's where we start, is having to confirm for them that this is wrong. I think they know it's wrong. They're aware that it's wrong, but it's 
uncomfortable for them or hard for them to always hold on to that or they question it because it can be so commonplace and everybody around them can act like it's just part of the day. And so for us to um, say, you know, is this kind of stuff going on? And they say, yeah, yeah, yeah. I think we need to start by saying, okay, you know that this is completely out of bounds. Like this is a completely out of bounds thing to say to anybody under any conditions. See, but for, and also in my world, uh, there's a lot of sexual shaming going on in social media. And it's oftentimes in Finstas. Uh-huh. Right. What's in Finstas? A it, fake Instagram. It's the Instagram uh, your parents don't know you have. Exactly. Okay. I'm, I'm out of the loop on that one. <laughs> I mean, I think, you know, I mean, and that's the fake news of social media. That's uh, for teens, which is to say this is where the real damage I think emotionally is being done because first of all, it happens. Oftentimes parents don't know about Finstas. They think they have access. They think they're on top of things. They're never on top of things. Mm -hmm. They're, they're Luddites compared to their children, even the young children. So a fake Instagram is an Instagram account a kid can create that that is under sort of a shadow or name that the parents don't have access to. Is that, that just, well, you're the parent you're like, Give me your Instagram. I want to be your friend. You uh -huh. know? So if it's a private Instagram account, then you think you have access to what's going on, but they never post anything. That's not, they just throw crap up there to placate mom and dad. As a red herring. A red yeah, herring Instagram totally. account. Okay, so so then you have Finsta. So the Finsta is what you really... That's your real, that's where it's, it's all... Quote, unquote, your, your true fake, interactions are happening your on Your fake Finsta. Instagram account is real. And so what's hap what are you seeing happening on Finsta's? Highly sexualized posts, young girls putting themselves out, you know, in ways that their parents would be aghast by. Like photos of... Photographs of themselves. Yeah. Of themselves naked or with... Well, in positions clothing. that you would think you would think that it would be not appropriate for a minor uh, okay. on social media, right? Um, but comments, and the real thing is the comment threads, right? Both the admiration and 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 the kind of bullying that happens... And those things get passed around pretty, pretty brutally. And they happen so often under the radar of school administrators and, and of parents. And kids carry these kinds of um, attacks uh, and they have to manage them. And they have to manage them in the kind of toxic environment of high school, which sucks. I mean, anybody that tells you they had a good time in high school is a <laughs> so so lisa are you seeing this you know you knew about finstas are you seeing this in your practice and 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 you know i think it's all pretty toxic to get a, a slur at school um, in face-to-face -face or in, virtually i mean it's it's horrific yeah but the stuff that my kids had like if it's face-to-face -face, it's manageable because in some ways there's the administrators or there's the teachers i mean that was that's not the re I, to my in my experience with I mean, the the teens that I know the really ugly stuff is the stuff that that happens. And so your girls have come to you with about them or, or about others. I mean they're aware of it. Yeah, so we talk about it all the time, right? I have two daughters, so they were part of each other's finstas. And yeah, anyway, Lisa, I'm I'm curious to hear your your thoughts on all of that stuff. Part of what comes into this, right, is developmental age, right? So, yeah. you know, a 12-year-old putting up a kind of sexy photo, right? That's one whole developmental universe that we want to try to understand, which is really different from, say, a 17-year-old doing the same thing, right? So it, it's like, you know, as I start to try to parse this mentally, you know, I'm thinking through what are the developmental frameworks that would come into play. And, you know, it gets really um, detailed fast. What I am thinking about, there's a couple different sort of questions for me that come up. And the word power keeps coming up again and again in my mind. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So one question is, is this a 12-year-old understanding of how she exercises her power as a woman, right? She's aware that this gets attention. She's aware that this pulls people her way, you know, whether they are admiring or criticizing. But 12-year-olds are interested in power, right? They're interested in social power. It's when bullying begins, you know, that, that I think that that's one way we want to frame this up. I think that's right. Talk with kids. Talk with kids. I think that's right because not to give too much away in my family, but when my older daughter would post things that my wife would find or I would find less than appropriate, let's say, right? I mean not naked, right? But still things that you would just like 
find harrowing as a parent. Yes, exactly. It's <laughs> a good way to choice. Choice. good way to put it. You know, she accused us of being sexist, right? And I was like, "Wow, that's really fascinating, wow. right?" Because <laughs> right. because I'm like, you're objectifying yourself. Uh, is you know my feminist an adult approach. way of looking at it, right? You don't want to turn yourself as a woman into an object, right? Where they're saying, you're telling me my body's gorgeous, and so I'm going to use my body and, and celebrate it, and everybody's going to celebrate it with me. If and, you're telling no. me what to yeah. do with my body, you are sexist, yeah. period. Yeah. Right? Yeah, That's no, the it's logic. A really... It's a, And you're like, well, how do you – I mean, like, whoa. That was, yeah, that... no, it's a very different view of it, right? Oh, completely. Completely inside out. So then the other thing where power comes into this – and this is a topic where I just really feel like – grown-ups have dropped the ball completely is on the question of sexting and rules about sexting and how we think about sexting and you know i know it's really complicated but one of the things that i find myself having a very hard time with is when i hear a scenario where an eighth grade boy says to a seventh grade girl send nudes right so that's and that is the tamest friendliest invitation for that kind of thing that i usually hear about and I, as soon as I hear that, I'm like, there, that, that's harassment. Like, he, you know, like there's no power equality here. You know, this is an eighth grade boy. This is a seventh grade girl. Or it could be, you know, a kid in the same class, but he's got a ton of social power, right? And so suddenly this request, which looks kind of neutral and like she's free to ignore it and everybody's doing it, to me feels so much more loaded and something that the adults have not really engaged in a meaningful way. Um, and then often it's not at all unusual for that. You know, if the girl says no, you know, then then actually it does turn into really what is without question harassment for inappropriate photos. And yeah, then and what's the what's and what's how, also what what also goes on is that uh, to misquote Thomas Friedman, the world is flat when it comes to social media. So those boys, let's say they're on Instagram, are privy to public accounts yeah. of people they don't know. Um, you know, the Kardashians, for example, how, you know, so things, you know, where they then want to mirror, I mean, I sound like a Rush Limbaugh guy here now, but where they want to mirror things that they're seeing in popular culture, which is highly, highly sexualized. Meaning they want pictures from their, from, from their, their peers. classmates that are Kim Kardashian. Well, and that's the tamest. Right, right. But as an example, and where they don't see any difference. I mean, at least in my experience, right, where they where they see no difference between somebody who's, well, frankly, first of all, an adult, right, but secondly, somebody who is famous and and the seven year old that you're talking about. And Lisa, to go back to the developmental piece of this, we are, we have, we're dealing with young kids, um, you know. 12 is different from 17, and I want to go back to that, too, to get your definition on, on where we're at when we're 17 or dealing with a 17-year-old. But we're still dealing with kids with a brain development and impulse control that has not fully um, been formed. Um, and and they have access to this very potent material or this these channels where potent material can be trafficked um, uh-huh. or exchanged. And so how have we dropped the ball by in your in your view. Well, so one one place, just to go back to the um, inappropriate photos and the sharing of them, you know, that the one place I feel we dropped the ball is that we save a lot of our critiques for the girls, you know, that we're like, why would she put up a photo like that? And we set to the side the fact that she, you know, she was asked 40 times by a boy to do it. And we, um, we don't really make an issue of his constant request, but we do make an issue of her finally giving in. So that, that piece, I, I really, um, think we need to revisit. The place where I feel, you know, if we want to talk about a really charged topic and one where I feel like it's on fire and we're not doing our job, really is pornography, right? That a lot of kids are learning about sex from looking at porn. And um, it's hard, you know, not to sound prudish as an adult when talking about it. But I remember um, feeling kind of more like, oh, kids look at porn, you know, it's one of those things. And then several years ago, a mom in our community I was, I was about to give a talk at a boys' school in our community, and she said, you know, I, 
I think you should take a look at what the boys are looking at. And she sent me to Pornhub.com, which I thought, surely they will ask for a credit card or surely they will <laughs> ask if I'm 18 or surely or whatever. So I type in Pornhub, Pornhub.com. That, and what that was literally up, the first time you went to it? Yes, it was. I had never, I, had, I, I, I am not myself a regular consumer of porn. So I, um, I was floored. I was absolutely floored. And what I was floored by. And at by, what age are they accessing Pornhub.com? 10. 10. Yeah. Okay. So what I saw, and again, like I've had two children. I have been a practicing clinician for nearly 25 years. I am no prude. I, you know, I have been in the world. What I saw were nine nine videos running simultaneously popped up on my screen, you know, in these sort of like a, you know, tiled version. Every one of them looks like violent rape, um, just really hardcore uh, graphic to the point of like grotesque. Um, and yet the woman seemed to be having a really good time in what looked to me like a really, really um, upsetting situation. And I just... And of course, you know, if we're just well, if we're going to talk about it, let's talk about it. You know, of course, yeah. everyone in there is an anatomical outlier. Everyone, the men, the women. I mean, like you know, bodies like you've never seen in nature, right? And I just so I was like drop jawed looking at this, and I thought, what would it be to be a ten or an eleven year old, and this is your introduction to sex, right? Well, like, but that's also what? because we don't know how to talk about sex. Right? I agree. I, I mean, agree. But the problem so, is, is that the kids are going to Pornhub to to learn, right? Yes. Because or out of curiosity, probably. Well, from friends. when you when you have when you hit puberty and you don't know, right? I mean, first of all, the last person you want to talk to about sex is your parents, right? That's right. That's like right. the worst right. thing in the world. And they're not going to bring it up either. Yeah. So, so let's let's be honest, life. right? But you know. Look, every generation has, I mean, pornography has been around since at least Pompeii. I mean, you know, when I remember walking through Pompeii and the penises and everything graffitied all over the walls, but it is dysmorphic and they're not learning any meaningful social skill. They're not learning about love. They're not learning about intimacy. But I would take it further. I would actually say what I saw felt to me actually traumatizing and very different than passing around a Playboy with your friends. And, and I have cared for kids who were traumatized by porn. Um, and, and often the way it has unfolded was that they were seven or eight and they went on a play date or went on a sleepover to a friend's house and some older sibling thought it would be funny or who knows what and showed the little kids porn. And, you know, the kid didn't sleep for six months and then finally blurts out to their parent what happened. Right. Yeah, it's it's overwhelming, and it, you know, de- looking at it from the you know perspective of uh, somebody who treats people who have been assaulted, um, and some in adult survivors of ch- childhood molestation, their brains literally can't contain that kind of adult material, meaning that it's too it's it's not in a language that children can digest. Children have their own sexuality, but on a level that their their minds and their bodies and their their perspectives on the world um can handle within a bandwidth and 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 that that extra bandwidth of these dysmorphic bodies this violent sort of interactions on a sexual level is is very very potent and and so then lisa if they are being exposed to this maybe maybe not you know in a overtly they're just getting access to pornhub it's not somebody uh, flashing them or somebody manipulating them in getting them cornered into a place and getting sort of getting off on exposing a child to sexual material if it's just there for them to access what do we do about that so separate from questions of regulation <laughs> that, which we're not going there so here's what i did here's what i did so i first of all because I've been caring for kids clinically who, where I'd heard these stories, I actually made a rule with both of my kids that they were not to go on computers outside of our own home, you know, school or home. Mm-hmm. But I said, if somebody, you know, if you're at a play date and somebody says, let's, let's go do this, you say, you know, my, my parents say I can't go on other kids' computers. Like, I just, I just was so, I'm not a particularly anxious parent, but having cared for a couple of kids who had this unfold in this particular way, this, that was one thing I did. Um, another thing I did is that when my older daughter wanted a phone and we were negotiating the phone, 
Um, I actually said to her, I said, my number one concern is that this will be the domain through which you see pornography, whether you're curious or somebody shows it to you. And I said, so there's a whole bunch of stuff I want to say to you about it before that time comes. And I, and I said, you know, that a lot of what is out there is, um, is not loving, is not kind. It, you know, to quote Dan Savage, you know, pornography hates women. Um, and, and I think that's a very um, valid statement <laughs> framing on it. Um, and, and then to say, you know, I don't want you to think that that is what sex, you know, is about. Uh, has to be about. I want you to be very mindful that these are people who are, um, you know, electing to take pay to have sex in a public venue. You know that the, like that that is one one corner of the sexual universe that is not the sexual universe, and that is a corner that has commerce mm-hmm. involved. And you know, and and I said, I mean, we did it on a walk, so she didn't have to look at me. I said, and just to be clear, like that's not what's going down at our house. <laughs> You know, the, the really violent, weird stuff you're going to see, like, that's not our sexual lives in our own home, you know, like between your dad and me, you know, and I, I, of course, I'm sure she was like ready to crawl out of her skin. But like <laughs> that's what a lot of little kids look at it. They're like, oh, my God, is that what's happening? You know, in, in my parents' bedroom, which is really terrifying. terrifying for yeah. And how old was your daughter when you had the negotiation 12. with the fund? We had that conversation at 12. And she knew and what pornography was, and she knew. She knew. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Sure. And they I, know and a I lot said earlier to her, than that. I said, when the day comes, when the day comes, not if it comes, like, because I, I, there will be some, I know she will see it. Like, I, I, and I wish I didn't know that, but I do not. I said, when the day comes, you can ask me any question you want. I will answer it. No judgment. Don't worry. Don't feel like you have to worry, you know, walk around with questions that you can't get answers to. Yeah. But you see, I think that the genie's out of the bottle. So you can tell your kid to not look at the computer outside her home but when she's 12 13 14 there's yep. no way that's gonna hold yep there's just... that's why i said that's why i said when you see yeah. it but when everybody else it. is is engaging it. everybody else in her social circle well i mean the genie is out of the bottle but we can talk about the genie and we can name it yeah. and when it's not nameable just like the monster in a horror movie is much more effective when it's shadows on a wall like when you actually see the monster it it suddenly has limits yeah that's my take which is it's like it's it's like media literacy right kind of you know uh, to get back to our earlier conversation about Trump or politics you know one of the things you have to teach your kids is well what's the source of the information is it a rumor you know did you read it? Did you read two articles about it in two different sources? You know, trying to help them learn the viral quality of our political environment right now. And I think that there's something of the same thing here when it comes to uh, a very over-sexualized society and 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 a society where pornography has seeped into everybody's cell phones and just it's just everywhere for especially for a certain cohort of kids and i think one of the things you have to do is teach them how to read it teach them like look this you know this this isn't real and this is what it is and this is why it exists and this is what the industry is because if they read it uh like sort of like they see it as matrix code it loses its um, well, it loses its chaos. It, it, yeah. There's there's less overwhelming quality to it. I mean, it's going to be overwhelming. But what were you going to say, Lisa? And I, I think, like, let's just keep going, which is, you know, we now show rape on TV a lot. You right. know, TV Game shows now Thrones. have rape as part of the story. And, and, and rape, rapes that are shown, you know, as part of the story um, a lot. You know, that – and again, I, I think maybe it's because I work with it clinically – I'm I'm more sensitized to it, or I'm not desensitized to it. But I finally had to stop watching Game of Thrones. I was like, I can't I can't watch another rape. Like I just right. can't do it. Right. You know, because if you've cared for people who, who have survived it, survived that, like it just it, you know, and and it was interesting in all of the hullabaloo about Thirteen Reasons Why, which you know when that came out, you know, clinicians everywhere, we were all, you know, um, beside ourselves about the impact on kids and the way in which it got way out ahead of the grownups. The most... And to orient people who might not know what 13 Reasons Why is, it's a novel about suicide. It's a novel, but then Netflix made it into a TV show Mm -hmm. that they released. And 
kids had watched the entire thing before grownups even knew what it was. Mm-hmm. You know, and and it it's about a girl who takes her own life, and then it sort of um, it unpacks retrospectively the events leading up to it. So everybody was rightly really really concerned about the messaging around suicide and all of that. The conversation that stayed with me the most, I was talking with a bunch of ninth grade girls, and in 13 Reasons Why, there are rapes, and one of them, they're, they're very graphic. They are very graphic. Uh, so graphic that an adult man said to me, it was one of the most upsetting things I have ever seen. And I remember sitting with this group of ninth grade girls, and I said, you guys, I hear there's rapes in this. And I, one girl in particular got this stricken look on her face, and she said, it was awful. And she looked, Betty, she looked traumatized, like straight mm. up traumatized. And I was thinking like, holy moly, like when did this come into the culture that we just show? Yeah. Well, it's My question extremism. Was, where's and... the adult at Netflix that thinks that... Right, uh, right. That's what that. I thought. I there's know. That. I mean, I was I mean, on the ceiling about that. Well, I think the thing is, is that with Game of Thrones and with this, which I, I did not know, the, the rape is so graphic, but the, the everything's getting louder. Everything's getting more. The explosions, it's it's... It's like the sensory overload of... What killed me was Game of Thrones, at least ostensibly, is labeled M.A. and is supposed to... I mean, it's still right. gross. I mean, it's like, supposed to be for adults. But this was literally targeted right. for yes. this I audience. Mean, in, so they showed a rape but oh, it's of a minor sell, for minors. It's for gonna, minors to It's consume. going to sell tickets. And this, no, no, no. It's not even selling know, tickets. They've already got your subscription. But like, it's gonna it's it's gonna, gonna get attention. Yeah, yeah. It, no, I mean it's that's the, but that killed me is and, that an adult th- thought that it was okay, right, to show the rape of a minor, and then what do or we, consumption of minors. what do we do when we have to bring it back a little bit to state before we let you go, Lisa, a president who has been accused sixteen times of sexual harassment and assault, um, allegedly, um, and there's a tacit endorsement because this these accusations came out before he was elected and then he was elected. And that really impacted my patients, some of whom were on the older end of the adolescent spectrum, meaning in their early 20s. Um, and they were devastated. And so how how do we how do we digest this, you know, continuum? Because what you're talking about with the sexting and the, the endorsement and the rape that is uh, open and accessible and uh, grotesque, really kind of sadistic material um, that that kids are um, seeing as a tacit endorsement because it's on Netflix. It's not on some clandestine, you know, even Pornhub, which isn't yet at the level of, um, you know, a normative place as Netflix I hope <laughs> it is. Um, it's the most visited website. I mean, right? But no, no, it's, it's still the most called Pornhub. It's not Netflix. You know, it's not like oh, let's see what's going on on Pornhub tonight. Yes, you know, that's, like that's um, Betty. But that is exactly what happens. But it's no, normative. I mean, it's not. It's not. Your you're kids not. Are too you're not young. saying, hey, kids, let's go see what's on Pornhub tonight. They are um, fine, but they're not openly admitting that the way they say, let's see what's on Netflix tonight, mom, you know, or dad, you know, that that's just not what's happening. But, but, you know, why they don't need to, because it's all happening on Netflix anyway. So, so how do we did, as to your point, Michael, the genie's out of the bottle. So, so what we can do to digest this with our children is, is probably all we can do because because the 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 media in the commercial landscape is is what it is um and obviously there's they they do things for very good business reasons um and so therefore 13 reasons why came out in the ways that it came out probably because people saw maybe in in a not direct way the success of game of thrones like this has all become normalized okay so i think first of all we have to acknowledge that yes it's gotten louder and louder and louder, but child psychology has not changed. You know, kids' capacity to take in the world is what it's always been. It's not that somehow children are suddenly able to tolerate things they were not previously able to tolerate. So I would say, and maybe this is naive, I would say parents should take steps to try to filter some of it from reaching their children, especially younger kids, right? That I don't think we should be like, well, they're going to see it all. So, you know, we'll just see, like, hold on and see what happens next. I mean, I do think there's a lot to be said for trying to have guardrails when we can. And then I think we get out in front of it and we say, when you see, 
pornography. Here's what you're going to see. Here's how we think about it as a family. Here's my availability to talk with you about it. And then the other thing I think we say, you know, with regard to, say, Trump and the question of his um, sexual history is we say, here are our values as a family. This is what we believe, right? And and articulate those values and where they do or don't line up with, you know, any political figure or any public figure. And I think, again, so much comes through in how we say it. And and kids do draw reassurance from grown-up, from feeling like, okay, there are some grown-ups in the room, right? Maybe not as many grown-ups in the room as, as we, we would hope. Right. But, but there no, are some grown-ups in the room. And, and then I think the piece that we, you know, I'm thinking through as we have this conversation is, well, if the, if, if the totally, if the stuff that feels out of control is getting louder, then the grownups in the room need to get louder too, to reassure kids that they're, they're, they're not crazy, that this is not how things just go, right? That they're not having the wrong reaction to things. Thank you, Lisa. You're welcome. Thanks for a great conversation. Yes, this is Thank fantastic. You, I mean, who knew we were going to go to porn? <laughs> well, I, you, know, you know, it doesn't always happen, but often you talking about porn. All right. Have a good one. Thank you so much. Well, we've reached the end of yet another session. And as my analyst likes to say to me, take your problems home with you. Mind Estate is a production of Mind Estate Media, LLC, and Hangar Studios, NYC. Our Cracker Jack producer is Caroline Quash. Our engineer is Rick Serbini. Mind Estate's original music is composed by Joel Goodman, courtesy of Uver Music. I'm Michael Epstein. And I'm Betty Tang. You can connect with us on Twitter at Mind of State Pod, on our Facebook page, and at our website, mindofstate.com. You can also subscribe to our show at Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next week. Music